Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Chapalak. This is episode two of the story of Tibnine Bridge and the massacre of three Irish soldiers on peacekeeping duty in Lebanon 40 years ago. In episode one, we heard from Tom McCochran, the RTE reporter who covered the case. The word that came back was that a car had come up to this checkpoint. The occupants had jumped out, opened fire, uh, killed three of them. And that the survivor, uh, who turned out to be Private Mike McGillivy, that he had been up at the toilet. When he came back down, he found his uh, three colleagues uh, dead. We also heard from Paul Clark, the soldier who first arrived at the scene where the bodies of Gary Morrow, Peter Burke and Thomas Murphy were found, along with Michael McAlevey, the sole survivor of what he said had been a gun attack by militants. I knew McAlevey, yeah. I knew McAlevey well. I used to play squash with him. As far as I remember, he's a quiet fella. You know, I didn't have an awful lot of interaction with him in the unit. Yeah, the next time I got to see him was 27th of October in, in the, the, the hut on Tibden Bridge. We heard from Noel and Mary Burke, the parents of Peter Burke. They said, please tell me that he's injured, because it said one of them was injured. They said, well, no, we're sorry, Mrs. Burke. And we heard from Colette Morrow, the widow of Gary Morrow. On the day of his funeral, she was to get another shock. I drank tea and I was getting sick. The morning I buried him, and I knew then. I, I told my mother, and my mother says, what did you have? Did you have anything to eat? And I said, cup of tea, you're pregnant. We left this story in the last episode on the night of October 27th, 1982, when former Defence Forces driver Paul Clark had travelled to Tibnine Bridge, where he found Michael McAlevey pointing a gun at two Lebanese men and the body of three of McAlevey's comrades, Corporal Gary Morrow, Private Peter Burke and Private Thomas Murphy, lying at the scene. The doc puts Peter Burke into a body bag and put him into the, the ambulance. And then some other guys put the, the other bodies in, you know. McAlevey was taken away up to the hospital and he was looked after up there, I believe. Conor Gallagher is the Irish Times crime correspondent. Conor, what happened next? It was then that McAlevey gave his account of what happened that night. In 20 hundred hours, an Israeli jeep with no doors approached our position from Asultanaya Road. Corporal, Corporal Morrow stopped, the vehicle, stopped the vehicle to check it. There were only two soldiers in the jeep, the driver and passenger. 
I stood in front of the jeep with my weapon covering it off while Corporal Morrow asked for identification. The passenger soldier of the vehicle got his coat from his shoulders and pointed at the rank markings on his shoulder and said, This is our identification. I then pointed the rifle at him and said to him, The corporal asked you for your identification. At this point, McAlevey used an anti-Semitic term of abuse. Israeli soldier passenger then pushed my rifle away from its pointed position and said, Talk with your mouth, not with your hands. He then said something to the driver, but uh, I didn't hear what he said. I then called him a few times. There's something unusual about the way McAlevey admits unprompted to his use of racist language against the Israelis. It's something we would have had no knowledge of if he hadn't said it. Corporal Morrow then intervened and put a stop to your confrontation. The Israeli jeep then drove over Tibnian Bridge, continuing its journey. After the Israelis left, he and the three other soldiers sat down for a while, and then McAlevey said he went to the toilet. It was as he was entering that he heard shouting and then gunfire. I seen flashes coming from the road below me and I heard shouting and yelling. I then hit the ground for cover and stayed there till the firing stopped. I then ran for the radio, which was uh, on the wall of the guardroom, and shouted into it to get somebody down to our post because there'd been a shooting. I then seen a civilian car approaching Tibnian Bridge. When the car started to come across the bridge, I, I started to shout at it to stop. When the car responded to my shouts, two civilians got out and had their hands up over their heads. The Irish reinforcements then arrived. At this point, I had my rifle pointed at the two civilians. He was discharged from hospital very quickly at his own request. He really wanted to go back to his unit, to A Company, uh, but word came back from HQ in Ireland that this wasn't to happen, that he was to be kept separate. So McAlevey was brought to a compound known as Gallows Green, which is where the military police were stationed, and for the next few months, he was kept in a kind of quasi-custody, where he wasn't quite under arrest, but he certainly wasn't free to go. Now, it wasn't a particularly tough time. He was allowed to go to the shops even and to go for runs, but an MP had to be with him at all times. He was even allowed to go to the Christmas party at one stage. I remember driving through uh, Tibnin one of the days going to the camp, and I seen him out with two military policemen, just, you know, out for exercise. So he was under their watchful eye. During this time, uh, an investigation was going on in the background, and at a certain point, these investigators began to look at McAlevey not as a witness, but as a suspect. Why was that? What was it specifically about his story that didn't add up? Well, there was no witnesses aside from McAlevey, but none of the forensic or ballistic analysis which were carried out uh, in the weeks and months afterwards supported his story. So when the results of those came back in January, naturally suspicion fell on him. But in fact, suspicion had been building for a while anyway, and indeed, rumours were already uh, widespread in military circles and in, in the media back home that there was more to this than, than might meet the eye. There were suspicions, because there was nobody nobody admitted to it. There was no, um, no evidence of anyone else. First light that morning, we come down uh, from Al Jorn, we stopped again at the bridge, and I walked up the, to the, the toilet and looked down 
where McAlevey would have uh, been when he said he was, you know. And to the right was lines of barbed wire, so he didn't come down that way. And to the left was the track down, and Gary Morrow's body was would, would have been laying across it. He would have known where Gary was. When he was asked in, in the pillow, where, where's the corporal, he didn't know, you know. So things like that. And there was no rounds, there was no shell casings up there, you know. And so over the few days, as the, the investigation uh, went on, um, things started to come out, you know. Here's former RTE security correspondent Tom McCochran. Christmas came and went, and then in January we learned that the Gardaí had been asked to supply a team of detectives to help in the investigation. That team was uh, headed by Chief Superintendent Dan Murphy, a friend of mine, knew him quite well, and uh, uh, Pat Calhan, Jerry O'Carroll, and Tom Connolly. I was a detective sergeant in the investigation section. Tom Connolly, by then, was already one of Ireland's most experienced murder detectives, and he was one of the men selected to go out and assist the Irish Army with this investigation. One day, I got a call to go to Chief Superintendent Dan Murphy's office. So I went in, and he says, Tom, we have a job in the living. Irish newspapers, they were able to get them in the, in, 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 in the Army camp out there. And uh, there were articles about this uh, shooting and they were sort of pointing the finger that might be one of themselves. And the army had questioned McAlevey numerous times and he gave them a story saying that they were attacked. There were suspicions maybe that he was involved. And they looked for assistance from the Garda. While he was in this quasi-custody, Michael McAlevey had grown increasingly aggressive towards the military police who were detaining him. And when the Gardaí arrived, he was just as aggressive with them, at first at least. Superintendent Murphy and Inspector Colhan commenced to interview McAlevey. He greeted them with an extraordinary display of aggression. I don't give a fuck who you are. You're no different to the fucking MPs. They kept speaking to him, and um, he said that he was a fucking werewolf, that he would shoot up the world. A werewolf? Werewolf, yeah. Did you not know I'm a fucking werewolf? I shoot everybody. I go around and shoot up this fucking world. Connor, who was Michael McAlevey? Michael McAlevey was born in 1961 into a West Belfast nationalist family. His mother left the family at an early age to travel to the UK and they had very little contact with her after that. And the father essentially uh, raised uh, McAlevey and his two sisters. He was an intelligent young man, but he didn't get on great in school. His academic record isn't the best, but he had great talent for art and for drawing. And although he, he grew up in the Troubles and he was you know, part of a, a nationalist background, he had little interest in getting involved in the Troubles and had indeed he had been approached by the IRA to become a member and, and that's something he showed uh, little interest in. On graduating school, he was unemployed for a time before he got a job in the General Electric plant in the late 70s where he worked as a toolmaker. He experienced some sectarianism in that job and left 
Uh, he went on to apply for a civil service job in the Department of Health and at the same time he applied for the Irish Army. McAlevey had always shown an interest in soldiering uh, from an early age and, and this had always been kind of an ambition of his. Once in the army, he didn't fit in that well. There were suspicions of him because he was from Northern Ireland and given the climate at the time. He did a, various different courses, including trying out for the Army Ranger Wing, the, the Special Forces unit. Uh, he wasn't admitted to that. And it got to a stage pretty quickly that he wanted out. He was offered a chance to go to Lebanon and he viewed this as a way, first of all, to earn a little bit of extra money, but second, to speed up his exit out of the army. He later said that he doubted the mission in Lebanon that if, or if Irish soldiers should be there in the first place. He had several arguments with his fellow soldiers and was known to be quite a difficult chap to get along with and was quite standoffish at times. So by the time he is in Lebanon, uh, he's quite disillusioned with the army uh, and wants to leave as soon as he can. The Guardi continued interviewing McAlevey. Time went by anyway. McAlevey mellowed somewhat. And the stage was reached where he started to cry. When he stopped crying, he was offered a cigarette. He said he didn't smoke. But he needed something now. I want to tell you the truth about what happened that night. After some hours, he admitted that he was responsible for the deaths of his three comrades. I shot them. I'm sorry, I didn't tell before now. He made a statement and was taken down in writing from him. He outlined his version of what had occurred that night. When McAlevey confessed, his story had a lot of similarities to his earlier statement. The jeep with the two Israelis came and McAlevey directed anti-Semitic abuse at them. But in this new telling, there was then a heated confrontation between Morrow and McAlevey, one which ended in tragedy. After the jeep had passed, the corporal said to me that was a stupid thing to do. I then said to him, you're a stupid bastard for letting them through without identification. McAlevey said that he and Morrow bickered for a while, mocking one another. The corporal then told me that I should be quiet as I was only a sub coming out to the Lebanon and that I crawled and begged to come out. Corporal Morrow then got Private Murphy to back him up. Private Murphy then started to slag me about my boots and my general appearance on parades and said that he would not stand beside me in parades. We should say at this point that this is just McLeavy's account of what happened. If Morrow, Murphy or Burke were still alive they might remember things a lot differently. McAlevey said that Morrow then ordered him to move away to a sandbag position at the bridge. I must have been standing there for about half an hour and I could hear them laughing. That is, Corporal Morrow, Private Murphy and Private Burke. After a while, McAlevey came back over to the three men and the row continued. According to McAlevey, Morrow threatened to have him sent home. I started to walk away and... As I did, I cocked my weapon, turned around and opened up. I started spraying and just held my finger on the trigger. I remembered the rifle jamming, but I just cocked it and opened up again. I then remember running beside them and mopping up. By mopping up, 
he meant that he had fired a final bullet at each of them at close range. The last thing I remember was shooting Corporal Morrow. He had gone around the side of the bunker. I then realised what I'd done and started to run. Things just started building up in me that night and... I'm sorry I did not admit it in the first place. I'm sorry for the families of Corporal Morrow, Private Murphy and Private Burke. May God forgive me for what I have done. Tom also asked McAlevey to do a sketch to draw out how he shot the men and the locations they were in at the time. I said, I hear you're a great artist. Maybe you'll draw it for us. Draw the, the bridge. So he drew it, grand. And then and the chairs named the, the, the member was sitting there on that chair when I shot him. And the other man was over there when I shot him. And then they were over there. That was, of course, great evidence of admission that he was admitting the shooting thing. So two weeks later and over three months after the, the murder, McAlevey was finally shipped home. This sent shockwaves through the military. Some of them wanted revenge. Oh, he, he disgraced himself, his unit, uh, the defence forces, you know, the standing of Ireland as peacekeepers at the time, you know, one of their own killed on a mission, you know. Disgusts, horror, hatred, all the emotions, everything, you know, that one of our own could do that. One of my own, from my unit. And that led to a lot of tension within the military community. Smart remarks, sniding, or here's murder bat, you know. And that hurt, it led to many a digging match, I can assure you. At first he was brought under armed guard to Carl Brewer Barracks. Then it was realised that one of the guards in Carl Brewer Barracks was a, a cousin of Corporal Morrow. They brought him into the into the barracks, he was in the van, and when it was realised uh, Jim Morrow was the guard commander, you couldn't put an arm... An armed man, he was sent down to Collins' barracks. Now, I don't know whether you heard of the, the rumour about his food, that there was uh, metal shavings put in his food, or glass, over in Collins' barracks. And he wasn't safe at all. You know, wasn't safe. Do you yeah. think the rumour's true? Or do you think oh, yeah, no, I have no doubt it's true. Oh, no, no doubt at all. Yeah. I mean, McLeavy killed one of the 5th Battalion lads who was in Collins' barracks, Peter Burke. And it was also absolutely devastating for the families of the three young men to learn that they had been, not died in in a battle, but had been murdered in cold blood by their comrade. The Defence Forces never told us. They didn't come to tell us. We read her in the paper, and when we read her in the paper and got in touch, apologetic. I didn't know it was McAlevey for, um, I don't know how long, but I don't think it was reported in the news at the time. I think it might have seeped out because I do remember saying to one of the lads, he, he killed Gary, and he said, no, he, he, Macker wouldn't do that, Clay. He's not like that. And I said, you're picking up for Macker. He did it, and you know he did it. But he wouldn't admit to it. He didn't want to admit None of them wanted to admit one of their own killed, one of their uh, three of them, you know. But this ordeal was far from over. McAlevey remained in the small military prison in the Curra, known as the Glass House, until the court-martial began in July 1983. And despite admitting to the killing several times to Gardaí, when the court-martial convened, McAlevey entered a not-guilty plea. 
Tomorrow in episode three, Michael McAlevey faces court-martial, but should he ever have been in the army in the first place? Half of them, you know, that spoke to us all have a story about him. He was known to have incidents happen that were very serious, that he should have never been allowed to travel in a UN uniform. This episode was researched and reported by me, Sarah Pollock, and by Connor Gallagher, and it was produced by Declan Conlon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.